Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. Peter Milligan's a hack. And so is Jeff Johns. See you next week. <laughs> We're the Verda guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. Don't care much for the light side of DC, which is run mostly by Jeff Johns. <laughs> I mean, not for the entire history of the company. <laughs> right. We're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we're looking at Sandman number eight, The Sound of Her Wings, written by Neil Gaiman with art by Mike Dringenberg. Art by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III, and a cover by Dave McKeon. We've got sort of a messy-haired woman with what looks like an angelic wing and an ankh pendant, and on the shelf she's surrounded by ivy. Yeah, I really like this sort of simple ivy frame in contrast to some of the more weird and elaborate frames that we've seen at various points in the series. It kind of it kind of almost conveys the idea that this episode or this issue is going to be a bit of a breather. Mm-hmm. Something different anyway. Yeah, and she's surrounded by life, so that's thematic. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> All right. So we open up on Washington Square Arch in Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. I wrote Paris, question mark, because <laughs> I'm a rube. <laughs> in the park, we have Morpheus sitting on some steps. He's feeding breadcrumbs to the pigeons. And nearby, there's a kid playing with a soccer ball. Yeah, I thought this kid was much younger from the first page than we ultimately find out that he is. How old did you think he was? Well, based on this page, he looks to be like 10 or so. Okay, and you figure he's... Well, we, find, we find out that he's a girl-crazy teenager yeah. or a young man. You know, late teens or early 20s. So is that an art critique or just a, a note? Just, I guess it's more of a note. I actually don't have much of a beef with the art in this issue. I've I've gotten used to the fact that Sam Keith is is no longer on the book <laughs> and making my peace with Mike Dringenberg. He's done some impressive stuff. And he has there are there are a lot of pages in this issue that are really beautiful. He's not doing a bad job at all of setting the mood in this issue either. Yeah, so Morpheus is sitting there feeding the birds from what looks to be a baguette mm-hmm. in support of my theory. <laughs> <laughs> when a ball comes flying at his head. And he catches it. Because he's secretly an amazing soccer player. You probably didn't know that. I didn't know that. I think it's actually probably an omnipotent thing. Oh, is that your headcanon? Secretly, whenever we're not looking, playing soccer. Yeah. <laughs> Morpheus <laughs> is really good at soccer. <laughs> I, I, I think there's reason to believe that it's an endless thing and not a... Not a secret hobby thing. Well, yeah, and there's reason to there's reason to believe that as the issue goes on. Yeah, exactly. He catches the ball, and the kid is amazed by the catch, but Morpheus just kind of absentmindedly kicks the ball back to him. Yeah, with a punt, exclamation point, sound effect. Yeah, some memorable sound effects in this issue. And the kid asks Morpheus to join him playing soccer because of that amazing catch. And Morpheus just says, No, no thank you. I am feeding the pigeons. The pigeons who are themselves making a flut, flut, flut <laughs> sound effect. <laughs> I mean, in a way, this is really noticeably lighter right off the bat, and the pronounced sound effects are a clear example of that. 
Yeah, I sort of wonder, you know, this is something I've never known about comics. Like, who writes the sound effects? The artist or the writer? <laughs> right, right. Anyway, so the kid wanders away, and Morpheus goes back to feeding the birds when he is approached by a gothy chick. Yeah, she's got the same very pale skin and black hair that he does, in fact. She's got a black tank top and a large gold unk pendant. And pants. Yeah, she's wearing pants also. They're black. Yeah, she's dressed entirely in black. Black goes with everything. Everything black, at least. And from the way her feet are drawn, it sort of looks like she has elf shoes, too. Yeah, Morpheus was wearing some, some pointy boots a minute ago when he kicked that ball, too. Oh, yeah, you're right. That is a, a sort of an effeminate boot he has on. They're bringing their full boot game to this, to yeah. this park. <laughs> yeah. So she takes a seat next to him, and there's a moment of silence. And then she asks, what are you doing? He's feeding the pigeons. You do that too much, you know what you get? Fat pigeons, she says with a huge grin. And she goes on to explain that the joke is from Mary Poppins, and that it's a movie in which a man is shown what the important things in life are. She says, fun, flying kites, all that stuff. When she tries to explain supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, she completely loses Morpheus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not really interested in this, as she continues to go on about Mary Poppins. And gets nothing more than an ah from him. <laughs> yeah, I think she's also, she's trying to explain what the word means. And she uses ginchy <laughs> to, <laughs> to try and, <laughs> which it's like, are you forgetting? Or maybe she doesn't know that he missed the last 70 years. Right. I, well, think, I, I think she knows, but maybe she hasn't fully figured out what that means. <laughs> Well, he was imprisoned for the entire time that calling things ginchy was a thing. Do you think it's already over by the time she uses it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it's already... I think it's already dated. <laughs> so, she goes on to make fun of Dick Van Dyke's British accent in Mary Poppins. And she says it's a cute movie, which is not necessarily everybody's thing. But apparently it's hers. And while they're having this conversation, she produces a pair of sunglasses from somewhere and puts them on. And then she looks cool. Yeah. And as the pigeons continue to flut, a little kid runs by them, yelling, Wagga, 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 vroom! Yee! There's a lot of people out having fun at the park. Yeah. And perhaps Neil Gaiman having a lot of fun with writing this dialogue. Yeah. She finally turns and asks Morpheus what's wrong. What do you mean? She points out that he is obviously moping. Yeah, I don't know. Do people really, like, go to the park and feed the birds when they want to be depressed? I would think that they, like, go to the park and sit there looking inconsolable. Feeding the birds is a more upbeat activity. Even, like, Keanu Reeves. When did he do that? Have you ever seen the picture of Keanu Reeves looking sat on a bench? I... I, maybe I have. Okay. It doesn't come to mind. It's not terribly important. Should we call Keanu Reeves John Constantine? No. <laughs> that would confuse people a lot. He's not John Constantine. That's someone else. Well, that's a good point. Like, if we ever recapped the movie, would we have to just call him Constantine? I think in the movie, he's... The, 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 he's movie, character, the movie character played by Keanu Reeves is John Constantine. Like... Morpheus is very intent on what he's doing. 
he doesn't, you know, just go and sit and, and throw the, the crumbs, and there he is. Like, somebody asks him if he wants to do something else, and he says, no, I am feeding the pigeons. It's super intense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he seems to think if he doesn't feed those pigeons, they won't get fat. <laughs> well, he definitely, like, terrible. he definitely acts out his emotions in a very, in a very deliberate way. And I think we'll see that again as the series goes on. So he says that he doesn't know what's wrong, but she's right. Something is the matter. And he sort of goes on to recap what's happened so far in this series. His capture, escape, his revenge, which didn't satisfy him as much as expected, and his adventures in recovering his tools. Yeah, and having gotten them all back, he sort of seems to have lost his sense of purpose. Yeah, he points out that when he got the ruby back from John Dee, or rather I should say when John Dee destroyed his ruby, the Materialpticon, all the power that he had invested in it came back to him, and so he's got more power to himself than he's had in eons, but that leaves him feeling aimless and drained. Man, this guy could find a cloud for any silver lining. <laughs> I'm immensely powerful right now. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah. So, it'll probably become obvious pretty soon, but this is another of the Endless, Dream's sister. Yes, and she sort of alternately sits and stands and wanders around him in circles and picks flowers out of the flower bed as she listens to him go on about his recent adventures. She's nothing if not an energetic person, and as he explains his recent malaise, she calls him... Utterly the stupidest, most self-centered, appallingest excuse for an anthropomorphic manifestation on this or any other plane. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's that she's energetic so much as that she's clearly bored. Oh yeah? Yeah, like listening to his story. She's she you know, she wanders around him in circles, she picks a flower, she plays with it for a while, then puts it in her hair. Yeah. She's really having none of his self-pity and <laughs> I think that's a fair read yeah and the art the art and the dialogue work well together to sort of convey her attitude about the whole thing she says that he's just feeling sorry for himself because his game is over and he doesn't have the balls to go find a new one and she bounces his crust of bread off of his melon with a bip oh my gosh yeah that's a great panel of him sort of like <laughs> raising his arms in self-defense he looks he looks more terrified of that crust of bread than he ever did of Dr. Destiny. Yeah, no kidding. That's probably my favorite sound effect of the series. I'm going to call out an unsubtle visual metaphor here. She points out that he's unwilling to go find a new game, and just a moment ago we saw him unwilling to play a game with those kids. Yeah, and speaking of those kids, at this moment the ball comes careening towards her head, and she perfectly reproduces his catch. Yep. Also a great soccer player. Yeah, and this is where she mentions for the first time that he is her brother. So, right. we spoiled so, that for you a minute ago, but, but here's where we actually find that out for a fact. So the kid runs up and is equally amazed by her catch as he was by Dreams a moment ago, and says she's as good as her friend. She replies, he's not my friend. He's my brother, and he's an idiot. Just feeding the birds. <laughs> He's so put upon in this video. Yeah. He just mumbles that sheepishly. Anyway, 
She has better things to do today than listen to Morpheus complain. She's got to go to work. Yeah, and she says, you can either come with me or you can stay here and sulk. I don't mind either way. He says, I'll come with you, I suppose. Don't do me any favors. Before they head off, though, Franklin asks if he can see her again. And she says, sure, Franklin, you'll see me again soon. And he wonders how she knew his name as she and Morpheus vanish. Yeah. And there's sort of a, like, Star Trek transporter <laughs> visual effect here, as they do. Yeah. The problem here is trying to talk about, trying to recap the action that's going on in this comic while not referring to the character by name for an entire issue. Yeah, it's a tough task we've undertaken for ourselves. <laughs> she and Dream are traveling through the city together, soundless and invisible, but not unnoticed. As they pass by, people say things like, someone just walked over my grave. And they arrive at an apartment building, and Morpheus, in narration, says that he's hearing a violin tune that he hasn't heard in hundreds of years. Incidentally, I really like the cityscapes on this page. Yeah. I think there was a page or a panel of New York City as drawn by Mike Dringenberg that I made note of a few issues back. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, he continues to do very well at drawing, you know, Paris. <laughs> and the mood here is completely different from the mood in the park there's a very different light to the panels and a very different sort of style of shading yeah that's right it has an almost sort of collage feel to it the way that the art style in which she and Morpheus are drawn being so distinct from the way that he draws the buildings and the, the backdrop right they enter this apartment to find an old man, Harry, playing the fiddle and singing to himself. Yeah, Harry explains that he's a fake Romani fiddler, and he's actually Jewish. Right, he played the fiddle professionally for some years, but he was only pretending to be a gypsy. And she says, I know who you are, Harry. Do you know who I am? To which he replies, You, you're... Not yet, please! And then his eyes sort of widen and he has a moment of shock as he recognizes her and, and then he instantly sort of calms back down, accepts it, and says, Yeah, I know who you are. And this is the scene where we find out who she is. Death. Yeah, so he says a prayer to get himself ready, the Shema, and then dies. Yeah, he refers to it as the Shema. It's the prayer that begins Shema Yisrael. Right. This is a common Jewish prayer asserting the oneness of God. And as he sort of steps out of his body and sees himself lying dead on the couch, he says, I look so empty. I look so old. This is a really nice panel here, too. Page width in the middle of this page as we have a long shot on the whole apartment with Harry's body on the couch with... Death, Dream, and Harry looking over it. Yeah, and there's a sort of painting of a skull over their shoulder. Right. So Harry's glad that he said the Shema. He says that it guarantees you a place in heaven. So I'm dead. Now what? Now is when you find out, Harry. Death draws him close, and Morpheus turns away and hears the sound of her wings. When she returns, she asks... I thought he was sweet, didn't you? 
Sweet? I do not know. Perhaps. Morpheus goes on to start to tell her about his captivity, and specifically the fact that the sorcerer who captured him was actually looking for her. Yeah. So, this is sort of Neil Gaiman's way. I think that this is an appropriate moment for the character, you know, Morpheus, to bring up this fact that it was her they were after when he was captured. Mm -hmm. But it's also sort of classic Neil Gaiman to... You know, after showing us that this is death, to then tell us a minute later. You know? Right. If we remember back in episode one that Roderick Burgess was after death, then by having Morpheus tell her that, he's just confirmed that that's who this is. Right, exactly. So he he confirms your suspicions in a way that, you know, modern comic book writers, I don't think, are, are always as good at this. You know, giving readers a chance to figure something out for themselves... But then confirm so telling it. Yeah. Yeah. They tend to if you fall behind, you just you know. It doesn't help that I think a lot of people in comic book journalism and criticism these days tend to think the more confusing the better. Mm. You know? If you have to read it three times, that's that's three times more comic book for your money. So it's nice to have something that sort of asks you to do the work but also expends some effort to keep you caught up. <laughs> right. I was at a comic book store earlier today, and there was a guy perusing the shelves, and he said, East meets West? What's this about? And I said, nobody knows, even the people reading it. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that series. Oh, I'm sorry. I said East meets West. It's East of West. Okay. Yeah, so Morpheus has told Death that they were after her, and she says she knows, but she's not really interested. She just hustles him along to her next appointment. Yeah, this is Esme. Esme is a fledgling stand-up. On stage at a comedy club. Second comedy club in eight issues. <laughs> Do you think Neil Gaiman was going to comedy clubs a lot in the 80s? I don't know. Maybe he really liked them. I think they were much, much more hip back then, maybe, mm-hmm. than they are now. I mean, they're definitely still a thing. Yeah. But I think perhaps the 80s is where they sort of caught on and were, like, really cool for a minute. Yeah. So Esme is doing her show, and she's not having the best time. Esme has to fight for every laugh she gets. It beats waiting tables. Yeah. And one thing we find out about Esme is that when she is electrocuted, she looks a lot like Robert Smith. We're getting ahead of ourselves now. (laughs) Are we? Well, I want to point out that she is telling a joke or a spiel here about... Batman telling his wife he's decided to be Batman. Oh, yeah. This bit is actually really funny. You're like, a fan of that bit? Yeah, I mean, like, we all know Batman's background, but people in the DC universe can only conjecture. <laughs> well, right. She refers to Batman's secret identity as Ralphie because she doesn't know who it is. <laughs> yeah. So, how does she get electrocuted here? Like, what what happens? So, I'm, I'm not an electrician. I understand that it's possible to hook things up to live current, and that means that they're not safe to grab. Like, there was that Penny Arcade comic about that, remember? No? Okay. Are we going to have a Penny Arcade in the show notes? <laughs> yes. Just like there always is in, in your other podcast. <laughs> I didn't realize for the purpose of this podcast you wanted to pretend that in our daily lives we don't constantly quote Penny Arcade. <laughs> I don't know if I do as much as you do. 
So, so I don't know what happens here. But yeah, the mic is hooked up to live current, and when she touches it, she is electrocuted and dies instantly. That's why you never want to kick off the night in a comedy club. That's not why. Okay. And I should also point out this moment where Morpheus is trying to talk to Death more about the whole sorcerer problem, and she tells him to shut up because she wants to hear the joke. Yeah, and Esme is not too happy about being dead. Those assholes, I don't believe it. That screwing Mike was live, those cheap, no good. She figures out who Death is at that moment, and then she cracks a joke about dying on stage. Death says, I thought you were really funny. Esme says, no, but I would have been. If she just had a few more years, she thinks she could have been really great. I'm uh, sorry, Esme. Your time was up. Come here, honey. Death says. And as again, Morpheus turns away and hears the sound of wings. Yeah, we should note that we're not actually seeing Death with wings in any of these panels. Right. Well, yeah, she passes for a completely ordinary person in the park. And yeah, we never see her with wings. Morpheus always turns away. In the next appointment, we come in on Death telling how it does depress her sometimes that no one's ever glad to see her. People enter Dream's realm without fear, and he agrees. And I am far more terrible than you, my sister. Yeah, I think that's interesting. They both agree that he's the scarier one, and she doesn't know why they fear the sunless lands. Right. We find ourselves in a small apartment where a young mother leaves the room for a minute, and Death picks up and hugs her baby as it suffocates to death. Yeah, how do you know it's suffocating? I understood the kind of choking sound that it makes here to indicate that it's not able to breathe. Oh, huh. I guess I just don't see anything that would prompt that. I'm not getting some of these deaths, like I'm telling you. But yeah, this page is very, I don't know, it's sort of, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but it's sort of like dead baby comedy, you know? You think so? I mean, I didn't think that it was intended as comedy in that respect. The whole issue is sort of sardonic, but it's not brusquely vulgar. Now, I wouldn't call it brusquely vulgar, but I do think that, you know, there are some things, there are some topics that, like, when a writer tackles them, it's like, you know, they're self-consciously trying to be, like, edgy and dark. You think so? You know? Yeah, and Neil Gaiman has a tendency to tackle those topics, and sometimes he pulls it off well enough that it's justified, you know, and you say, oh yeah, he can get away with that when other writers can't. And other times, not so much. He just, like, he just can't get away with it, maybe. I really didn't think of it as an expression of, of having balls. The thing that it reminds me the most of is, you remember the movie City of Angels? Yeah. And the first scene of the movie is a mother trying to save her baby who has a fever, and Nicolas Cage comes in and takes the baby. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I immediately thought of. And I don't know, I, this probably precedes that film. I don't oh. know if it precedes the original film. Well, yeah, I mean, the original film is... Utterly different? Way, way different. Yeah. It's mostly about listening to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds in a dressing room. <laughs> but, which you could do worse as a purpose for a film. Yeah, I think actually they're in that movie, too. Like, they're in that movie as Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At first, we like someone's like listening to them in the background, and then later they go to a show, and there they are. 
You ever see the episode of, now I'm completely off topic, the episode of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex that was a whole episode nod to Wings of Desire? It was no. a whole episode of Bato and the Major standing on rooftops with optic camouflage and cyber eyes looking down at people. Ghost in the Shell is a movie. <laughs> You've not, done this before! Not a TV still not show. accurate! <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so, so the mother screams, No! And we see her crumpled on the floor in the fetal position. Yeah, yeah. with the shattered baby bottle on the ground. There is a scene here before that that I should call out, though, where the baby asks, suddenly able to speak, but is that all there was? Is that all I get? And Death says, yes, I'm afraid so. Yeah, I like that part too. The baby bottle breaking is sort of weird to me. It's like, since when do baby bottles break? <laughs> yeah, a while ago they must have. And I think one breaks in The Killing Joke as well. Oh, I, I don't remember that. Anyway, we go to a montage of more people passing on. An overdose, a body face down on the street, an old woman in a hospital, a gunshot wound in an alley. Dream wonders aloud about humanity, why they fear the transition to the sunless lands. But they fear her, dread her, feebly they attempt to placate her. They do not love her. So anyway, yeah, so she continues to do her job, and he continues to hear the beating of her wings. He remembers a rare verse praising death. Death is before me today, like the course of a stream, like the return of a man from the war galley to his house. Death is before me today, like the home that a man longs to see after years spent as a captive. The poem is from Dispute Between a Man and His Ba, Ba being the ancient Egyptian concept of soul. It's an Egyptian poem from about 2000 BCE. Oh, wow. And when he said it was old, he's not kidding. Yeah, I didn't realize that literature survived that long. When he said it was old, I kind of imagined, like, oh, from right before he went in, right? We're talking about Keats or something. No. <laughs> no, this one's from ancient Egypt. <laughs> right. Anyway, Morpheus thinks how the poet understood death and understood that she has a function to perform, even as I do. The endless have their responsibilities. I have my responsibilities. That's sort of yeah. the important character moment for Morpheus in the issue. Yeah, that's right. And uh, as they arrive back at the square, he tells her that she taught him something he had forgotten. I thank you, my sister. Ah, that's what family's about, little brother. She says it was good to see him, and that she has to go after one last appointment. Yeah, and here's where we come back to, to Franklin. And again, this is on a related note to the dead baby thing. Not so much that, like, having somebody die in a car accident is necessarily, like, where you go when you're trying to be dark and edgy, but I will say that this whole sequence played as pretty smug to me. You think so? I mean, it's, like, it's very, like, Appointment in Samara, for sure. What's that? Appointment in Samara? Um, Death meets a guy, and Death laughs, and the guy is like, gotta get the fuck out of here, Death! And so he goes all the way to Samara, and, and you know, he runs into Death there and dies, and he says, why were you laughing? And Death says, you thought it was strange to see you there when I knew I was supposed to meet you at Samara. Uh-huh. Is this like a short story or something? I don't know. It's, it's a really old tale. I see. Well, in any case, yeah, it has that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy 
Oedipus Rex thing to it, in that, like, he's so distracted thinking about, you know, this cute girl that he met. Right. So Franklin's friend tosses the ball, and, and Franklin is chasing it, but he's really just, just going on about how he's got a date with one bad lady. <laughs> and he, uh, he runs into the street and gets hit by a car. And I, I sort of agree, I mean... When I was reading this issue, I thought it's going to be hard to say these lines aloud without seeming to have a macabre humor about them, specifically death's dialogue, like, I'm going to see you later. But I don't think that, I think that the writing has the macabre humor, but I don't think that she does, right? She doesn't seem to delight in watching the other shoe fall. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's fair to say. It's definitely Neil Gaiman with the, <laughs> with the getting, getting dark chuckles out of this <laughs> rather than death. Yeah, it, it's sort of a, it's very writerly in a way. It, it's, it's sort of showing off structure. Yeah. So immediately after being hit by the car, like the other characters, Franklin is now standing outside of his body and he has no idea that he's dead. I like this panel too because we have a close-up on the pointy boots of both Dream and Death as the soccer ball bounces to them and before it reaches them, Franklin is standing yeah, it really does look like she's got elf shoes on. Look, they even have buckles. Very Puritan in a way. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was in style. Dream walks away and Death bids him goodbye. As she walks off with Franklin. See ya, Dream. Don't be a stranger, okay? And she gently tanks Franklin toward the car. There's something you maybe ought to see. So now Morpheus is back where we first found him in the square by himself. He has much to do, but it can wait. He has found the solace he sought, though not in the way he imagined. And he sort of joyfully throws a big handful of... Is this sand or corn? From dreams I conjure a handful of yellow grain. Yeah, so is that... <laughs> it's not sand! <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe the idea of like having him throw a fistful of of something in the last panel of the arc is a nice bit of unity there, but but it's definitely either like breadcrumbs or wheat or so he's, corn or he, something. It's not sand. He's feeding the pigeons, not putting them to sleep. No, he's not poisoning the pigeons in the park. <laughs> so, yeah, so he throws the grain into the air and, and the pigeons all flock to get it, and I hear it, the sound of wind. Yeah, a little more of Neil Gaiman, you know, showing off structure there. So, kind of a standalone? Kind of an epilogue to the Preludes and Nocturnes arc? Also the issue in which Gaiman says, I think it's written in the footnote in the trades actually, he says this is the issue where he felt the series found its voice. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing for him to say, because... You know, it's not like this is an issue that's starting off a whole new story arc, right? Yeah. You know, which he will continue to get a lot of mileage out of for a long time. Instead, it's really more of a capstone of, of every issue so far. The Doctor Destiny story arc really kind of felt like it was where the whole series had been leading, mm -hmm. even though there were issues in there that kind of had nothing to do with it. But he has relatively simple adventures, getting back his bag of sand and his helm, and then getting back the ruby. is a considerably more prolonged affair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's interesting the way that there's sort of layers to it, you know? There's, there's the three-issue story arc itself of his 
battle with Dr. Destiny. Yeah. But there's also, like, the storytelling has a way of, like, treating everything before that as prelude, and, and this is definitely, like, epilogue. Yeah. But this is a story, too, that suggests forward motion in that this is Dream finding his feet and preparing to resume his duties. Yeah, uh, and I don't know if this issue tells us much about where the series is going to go from here. Um, That's fair. Aside from the fact that it may be sort of hints at, you know, there are five more Endless that we haven't met yet, and they'll be introduced in time. Yeah, and... We didn't mention it at the time, but in conversation, Death mentioned another member of the family, Desire. Oh yeah, that's right. It's definitely an issue that doesn't focus as much on Morpheus as a lot of the other issues, both before and since. This one spends a lot of its time introducing us to Death, although we do get an important moment in Morpheus's character arc here. Yeah, and... You know, having not read any further ahead of this, I don't know how much of a big role Death is going to play in the remainder of the Sandman series. But does she have a limited series or a, or a one-shot coming up? Yeah, she has a couple of spin-offs. She's, I mean, there are story arcs where she's very important, and there are story arcs where she doesn't appear at all. But she is kind of a breakout character in that she had a number of spin-offs, not to mention a fair amount of merch. Uh, she has... The High Cost of Living is one, and the other one is another pun on the same lines. <laughs> but yeah, she has two either one-shots or limited series to herself. Cool, cool. Well, maybe we'll cover those. I've never gotten to read them. They're not included in the Sandman collection. Ah, oh, interesting. That's that... neat to see, too, that... Not all of the Endless are as self-serious as Morpheus is. Yeah, that's right. She has a she has a much lighter touch. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty good issue. I criticized, you know, just a, a couple of pages of it here and there. But largely speaking, I liked it a lot. It had a good way of sort of being a breather issue and... Yeah. You know, giving giving the readers and Morpheus the sort of mental reset that they needed. Also, the art was really good. You know, I I haven't had a lot of praise for Mike Dringenberg mm-hmm. so far in this podcast, but I do think that like he introduces death as a character in a way that I couldn't imagine Sam Keith doing. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I, I just just don't her- see Keith delivering on that character design. I think that her feel would be entirely different. Yeah, yeah, and in his issues, Keith was largely, and this is partially an effect of the stories that he was working on, but largely doing kind of an, a more old-school, EC Comics, distinctly horror take. Yeah. And this is somewhat more naturalistic, I think. We get Death walking into the scene like she could be anybody. Yeah, yeah, and in fact... When I first read it, that's who I thought she was. Just another random passerby. Just he meets a goth chick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he meets a goth chick. All right. So that wraps up Preludes and Nocturnes. What do you think of the arc as a setup for the series? Well, they've definitely done a good job so far establishing Sandman as 
an interesting character and sort of establishing a new level to the DC universe that's entirely his to kick around in. Mm-hmm. You know? Both the world of dreams that we spent a little bit of time in and the endless. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But but also just on the level of, like, you know, the various pantheons of the DC universe. Yeah. You know? He's sort of more cosmic than the Justice League, yeah. but not as cosmic as, like, cosmic DCU. <laughs> right, right. There's a sort of magical realism level to the DC universe where he lives and that Neil Gaiman can explore without having to risk stepping on the toes of any other ongoing books. Yeah, there's also a sort of secret mythical history of the DC universe going on. Morpheus is tied to the backstory of an established villain, Dr. Destiny. He gets to meet and hang out with a couple of the old horror anthology characters. There's some fun with continuity in there as well. Yeah, I think... So Neil Gaiman likes showing his homework. As, <laughs> yeah, I think that's as, fair. As anyone who's read American Gods <laughs> yeah. can attest. And one of the things that he's done a lot of homework on is that he really knows his obscure DC Comics characters. Yeah. We talked about Black Orchid, I think, either in a previous episode or in the show notes, how he had come in and, and wanted to resurrect this character and had to explain to his boss who the character was so that he could do it. Right. And just using, like, old horror anthology hosts as his characters and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, if that's wrapped up, I think that brings us to a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This. This is a segment in which I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean's going to be reading I Zombie number one. From 2010, now a TV series. So we'll be right back. All right. All right, that was iZombie number one, written by Chris Roberson and art by Mike Allred. Yep. What'd you think of it? It was interesting. Mike Allred art is a thing more or less unto itself, with the possible exception of Chip Zdarsky art. Very clean, but very self-consciously art. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of Mike Allred. Okay. This might be the first thing of his that I've ever bought on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty harsh. It just has a very, like, this is a comic book. These are comic book characters sort of thing to it, you know? It's like, don't get immersed. Don't forget that you're looking at a comic book page and these are comic book characters, you know? Yeah. And with regard to the design of the main character, she's got, you know, white hair, and that definitely stands out in a crowd. All of the main characters, the supernatural characters, have sort of distinctive appearances, but the people that they meet look much more normal. In a way, I'm all right with that, though. It, it calls out the people of significance, in a way. Yeah, I, I think that's all right. I do think that, like, the, these character designs and even some of the character concepts seem to be, like, excuses for Mike Allred to draw cute clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you thinking particularly of Eleanor Roosevelt? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because there's this ghost character who dresses in a very old-fashioned kind of way. Right. Well, she dresses like Daphne Blake is what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, the other problem that I have with with Mike Allred as the artist on this series is that I don't think that his very artificial style really sells the gore. I guess I kind of thought that was deliberate, although there's not a ton of gore in this issue. We have somebody bit by a vampire, and then and then Gwen chops a, a top of a head off and eats a brain. Yeah, and it looks very much like a cartoon brain. You know, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's more of like an icon of a brain than, than, <laughs> than a drawing. You know, what I mean? <laughs> that's like the NES game version of the story where there's just a brain. Well, yeah. I I was thinking of the little brain icons in. Netrunner? What are those icons about? <laughs> they're they're just a little a little token that represents like the status of your player. Oh, okay. But okay. you can either get them or lose them. Or like in Zombie Dice when you roll you get a brain on the dice and that means Oh you ate a brain. Oh man, I forgot how much fun zombie dice is. It's a good little game. Yeah. But yeah, I guess I thought that was sort of a deliberate choice in order to keep the whole thing from from getting bogged down in the horrific detail of being a zombie. It's like, oh, she eats brains, but it just it just looks like this. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that's a perfectly defensible approach to zombies as subject matter. What I don't understand is why that's on the Vertigo imprint. Okay. Because you think that they could basically get away with what they have here in a mainstream comic. Yeah, yeah. In a PG-13 comic. Yeah, exactly. Like, Mike Allred's style makes it very sort of PG-13 looking. And it's not, like, that John Ridgway lurid take no. on the subject matter that you might expect from a horror comic. No, they did throw a couple of instances of gratuitous nudity in the first issue. Oh, yeah, I suppose there is gratuitous nudity. Although, again, it's Mike Allred's characters are so stylized that it's almost completely non-sexual. Mm-hmm. It's like the naked woman on, like, bumper flaps. (laughs) (laughs) It's about as pornographic as that. (laughs) All right. Well, I guess I was sort of marshalling my thoughts about the writing when we talked about the art. I think it's an interesting hook. I kind of have to go forward with the story to see what I think of, of, you know, the story and characters in a longer context. This basically just sets the stage. And this issue is maybe a little more flash than substance. There's a lot of really cute dialogue. Yeah. And that's well done. But it's not necessarily giving us an immediate an immediate feel of like who these characters are and what the major themes of this series are. Yeah, I think Chris Roberson really nails giving Gwen her own voice. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we know who anyone else is based on just issue number one. Right. I also really like the references to Dixie Mason Action Girl. I kind of like that it pokes a little fun at sort of the amateur detective, amateur sleuth genre, while also sort of situating itself in that tradition. Right, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to parody that a little bit, but also our main character is an amateur sleuth, and she also loves amateur sleuth. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's really cool. So do you think you'll read more iZombie? I wouldn't be adverse to it, but it doesn't seem like something that I want to put at the top of my list right now either. Fair enough. On an A to A to F scale. Oh, B plus. Alright. Okay, so we have just covered Sandman number eight, 
and iZombie number one. We hope that you'll join us next week when we cover John Constantine Hellblazer issues eight and nine. Last time we saw John Constantine Hellblazer, he jumped off a train. Come back next week when we find him in intensive care. If you like our show, please go to vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got plenty more episodes, plus show notes and links for every episode. You can also catch us on at vertiguys on Twitter or vertiguys at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.